I uh, had gotten seriously addicted to medications and had a lot of different addictions and a lot of different maladaptive behavior. Well, I would see it as a tool used a lot as a police officer and a detective yeah. to really keep somebody from telling somebody outside the home what was happening. And my dad pulled the golf club out of the bag of golf clubs and he started smashing things in the living room. He smashed furniture, he smashed knickknacks. And now, the safety zone. Welcome, folks, to a new episode of The Safety Zone. This is Melinda Ron, and I'm here with Mike McCarty. We have just a, an amazing story to share today. And Dr. Mark McNear is with us, and he, he just released his memoir. Actually came out yesterday, and we're the first one that he's talking to. His memoir is called Finding My Words, A Ruthless Commitment to Healing Gently After Trauma which is quite a quite a subtitle, says a lot. And interestingly enough, Mike, the foreword for his book was written by Josh McDowell. And we had Josh on, of course, to talk about his story. And Josh was really, the, the foreword is wonderful, but he had a lot that he could relate to Dr. McNear. They had some very similar stories in growing up. So Dr. McNear is a licensed clinical social worker, maintaining a private practice in New Jersey, he has over 30 years of experience in clinical work. He's a graduate of Northeastern Bible College, New York University, Oxford Graduate School as well. In addition to his private practice, Dr. McNear has been a speaker to general audiences nationwide. He has also been a frequent guest on nationally syndicated radio broadcast, authored articles for magazines, and been a co-host panelist for a video series dealing with Christianity and mental health. So, Dr. McNear, we are so happy that you're here today, and I'm going to turn it over to Mike because you just have an amazing story. Thank you very much. Yeah, Mark, thanks for joining us. Just last week, I spoke at a conference, and as I was talking to the participants, I said, everything I've learned over the last 30 years, I learned from survivors. So, we're excited to have you on the show today. And why don't you tell us, give us a little history on how we got to the point of the book. We'll get to the book in a little bit, but really share with our audience what you survived. Sure. Well, let me go back to when I was 19 years old, I had a really serious car accident and I was hit head on and I had broken my femur bone in my leg and I had thrown a, a pulmonary embolism. And like so many things in my life, that mess, God used it as a real blessing because after I had gotten out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for approximately a month. Then after that, I got out and felt lost, really lost in my life and had not been to church as a child much at all, a little bit, but not much. So I started searching like crazy and I bought a book by Norman Vincent Peale and it was The Power of Positive Thinking. And for whatever reason, the Lord really guided me to read it and... I devoured it. Two of the things that it talked about, it said, get a Bible and start underlining faith passages. And the other thing it said was that you should go to church. And so I decided to go to church. And so here I am with this Bible. I knew nothing about the Lord. I knew nothing about scripture. So I go to church and there was a gentleman, Robert A. Cook, and he spoke, he had a radio program called Walk with the King every day. So he had spoken at an evening meeting. And I remember the passage he spoke on going the second mile. And so 
after he had got done speaking, he asked people if they wanted to have a relationship with Jesus Christ to have their sins forgiven, to go forward and to accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And I went up right away and that was the beginning of a real transformation. It's taken quite a few years and <laughs> which we'll talk about, but I accepted Christ and thought to myself, if this is true, then there's nothing else I want to do that I want to learn scripture. I want to learn. And so I had gotten in touch with uh, Northeastern Bible College. And within a few years, I had enrolled and was studying to be a pastor. So I went to Northeastern. I was there for three years. And then because of a lot of the anxiety and depression that I was suffering from, went into counseling and felt like the Lord w was leading me into a, mm. a profession of counseling. So I went to Northeastern. I met my wife. We got married, Debbie. I then went to New York University after Northeastern Bible College, and I got my master's in social work and began to practice. Shortly after this, and this ties into the book, I was really suffering with a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety. So I went to a doctor and the doctor prescribed certain medications for me. I started taking them and Shortly after that, was hooked and got addicted to prescription medications. So the the medications mm. made me feel normal. They I had such high anxiety and, and so much depression. I thought, at least, I say normal. I thought it made me feel normal. It really just numbed me from the trauma that I mm. had experienced in my life. In the middle of that, I had my daughter Emily, and then went on for a second master's and for my doctorate at Oxford Graduate School. And so as the years progressed and as I was working with individuals, I would take more and more medication to function. Then fast forward to about seven and a half years ago, I uh, had gotten seriously addicted to medications and had a lot of different addictions and a lot of different maladaptive behavior. And in the book, I talk about sleeping for just about half the day and the rest of the day watching TV and zoning out. I wasn't working in that period of time. My dad had passed away, and I talk about in the book mm -hmm. that that seemed to open or give me permission to start talking about some of the things that happened in my childhood. So about seven and a half years ago, I entered rehab. I had called a, a physician that was prescribing medication for me, and I had asked her for more medication, and she realized right away that I was playing games with the medication, and so she said, you need to go to rehab. And so reluctantly, I said yes. And she was very blunt with it, very clear cut. You need to go. And so the next thing I needed to do was to talk to my wife mm -hmm. and say, guess where I'm going? And so we talked about, do you do outpatient or you do inpatient? And Debbie was really, really so kind and so loving and so grace-filled. And she said to me, you know what? You're not functioning. I can't even see you going to outpatient. You need to go to a higher level of care, you need to go to an inpatient facility, an inpatient rehab. So I started talking with colleagues, started asking them. It was a very humbling experience to call colleagues and be like, I'm addicted to medication. I need to go to rehab. I had done that for other people many times, but for me to do it for myself, it was very humbling. So Debbie said, definitely need it. And then my next thing was to call Emily, my daughter, Emily, and to tell her and her words to me she was just really, really gentle and very loving and said to me, I think it's a great idea. I'm so proud of you for being willing mm. to do it. So 
I go to rehab with the idea, they being very determined, I'm going to go there for 28 days. I'm going to get all better and come out of rehab and just start practicing again. But that's not what the Lord had planned for me. So I'm in rehab, and this is what I talk about in the first three chapters of the book. I'm in rehab, and I am going off the medication as the medication is going down. These memories of being sexually abused and physically abused and verbally abused and emotionally abused are coming back with a vengeance. And so I was being encouraged by staff and fellow clients at the rehab to talk about my story. And in my mind, there was no way that I was going to talk about the things that happened to me. There was no way. And so I acted and tried to pretend like things were normal while inside my insides were churning. There was incidents where my dad threw me in the garbage. He force fed me carrots and I ended up vomiting and he picked me up and threw me into the garbage and said, stay there, you're a piece of garbage. That was when I was about four years old. And then about at the same time, I was being sexually abused by my dad. And I talk about in the book, some of the horrendous things that had happened in that and just the confusion with being sexually abused. And I would say from the best of of my recollection, I was sexually abused from the age of about four. And some of the memories are very, very vivid. And so I was sexually abused from four to about seven years old. I talk about in the book and at seven, my family experienced armed robbery where there were four men that came in with guns and they held my parents hostage downstairs while taking my dad's coin collection and other things, cash, diamonds from the house. We were upstairs sleeping. We never woke up. But then I talk about in the book, just the extreme trauma that happened in our home. There was just so much dysfunction. My mom became an alcoholic. And I remember her sitting at the kitchen table, getting intoxicated, smoking cigarettes. And trying to, I, one of the things that was a goal in the book after I started talking about things was to be as vulnerable and real as I could be about the things that happened to me. And I wanted it to be relatable to other people, other survivors, other people that had gone through either domestic violence or sexual abuse or some other type of trauma. So that's a little bit, a snapshot of chapter one or chapters one through three, and then chapters four through six of the book. And then the last three chapters is just recovery and how the Lord worked in incredible ways in my life. And if you would have told me when I was sitting in rehab that I would be sitting here talking about this, I would have told you that you are absolutely insane because I was not going to talk about any of this. There was just so much guilt and so much shame that there would have been no way that, that I would have agreed to do anything like this. But the Lord has stepped by step, by step taking me Mm. to this point. I want to kind of talk about two things you just said right there. You were talking about the guilt and the shame, and these are such central pieces in the survivor experience where they've been programmed, like being thrown in the trash can, you're nothing but trash, and Mm -hmm. understanding it's not only the physical violence, be it physical or sexual but it's the the emotional abuse of really taking somebody and and emotionally beating them down until a lot of times you take on the responsibility. So when I hear the words guilt and shame, could you kind of expound on that a little bit? Sure. That's a great question. I think that clinically speaking, guilt is something that you've done wrong 
You go into a drugstore and you steal a bag of M&Ms and you leave and you have that feeling that, that you have violated somebody or violated a store. You feel bad about what you've done. Shame, on the other hand, is just that feeling like there's something wrong with you. It's not that you've done something wrong, but it is that you are wrong, that, that you, there's something so terrible about you that people will not be willing to connect with you will not be willing to give you affection, will not be able to give you the honor that, that you deserve as being an image bearer of God. It's powerful. Well, I would see it as a tool used a lot as a police officer and a detective yeah. to really keep somebody from telling somebody outside the home what was happening, as if nobody is ever going to believe you. Why would they believe you? Who are you? And I'm yeah, and it's it, it's interesting that you you say that. That's a hundred percent accurate. And and the idea too that I've thought a lot about my story. My dad never ever said to me, "Don't tell anyone." He didn't have to. It was just this agreement between us mm. that I knew without any verbal. And I know sometimes people are told verbally, "Don't say anything to anyone." But in this situation, I knew from a very young age that I was not to talk about the things that happened. And that's why it was so disruptive to me because here I am in rehab and these memories are coming back and they're saying, talk about these things. It's the way that you get free from things is by verbalizing and by processing. And there was this like, no way am I going to do this because there was this nonverbal agreement that I had that you don't tell things that go on in the house, especially things like that. Mark, did you have siblings, domestic violence? Was your mom yeah, I had, um Yeah, I had an older brother and an older sister. And one of the stories that I talk about in the book that I did include them because I, I purposefully did not tell their story because it's their story to tell and not my story to tell. But one of the stories I talked about was one afternoon, my dad got really angry. My mom and dad were fighting and my dad became uh, enraged. And there was a set of golf clubs in the living room. And my dad pulled the golf club out of the bag of golf clubs. And he started smashing things in the living room. He smashed furniture. He smashed knickknacks. He smashed the TV. And so we were sitting on the couch watching that, just frozen, just watching him do that. And I can remember him dropping the golf club and then looking at us and saying, look at what you made me do. Hmm. And again, in the book I talk about after that, I can remember my dad sitting down maybe an hour after that happened, and he was like fixing things and gluing things back together. And what I put in the book also is that what he couldn't fix, he went out and bought mm. new things for mm. the living room. I used a phrase, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was something along the lines of that the living room was put back, but my nervous system was still a mess exactly. from what had happened. My body would just absorb that your dad when mike was talking about often again the believability and we see this all the time that people believe the mm -hmm. perpetrator for a better lack of words in this case of course it's your father yes i find it interesting in your book that your father wasn't the ogre of the town oh no he was very very successful man and i talk about it in the book that he grew up in poverty and then rose from that. He didn't graduate from, from high school because I had a motorcycle accident, but he was very driven and very intelligent in so many ways. And 
very skilled as far as being a carpenter and things like that. He ran a construction company and he also was chairman of the board of a bank, a local bank. And so he was very well known in the town and very, very successful and helped so many people. He really, really helped. Like I, I still sometimes will be talking with people and they'll recognize the last name and they'll say to me, Oh, your dad was so helpful. He helped us get a mortgage. So there was that dichotomy between what I lived with at home and what I saw going on yeah. outside of the home in the community. Mark, we were chatting before, as we're kind of talking through you seven plus years ago, you got to this point, you went into rehab. You'd mentioned that when you came to this point as a Christian, the image of God as the father and how that from a survivor perspective what that means sometimes for a pastor or any of us that are Christian that may be sharing with somebody just to understand what you meant by that. Yeah, I, I think that when I entered rehab, I had so much guilt for things that I had done. And I had so much shame for the things that had happened to me that my head was really down. I didn't look up and I just felt like my life was over and I had done so many things and, and I had lied. And I had deceived myself and I had deceived my wife and my family and friends in so many ways. And on top of that, I felt like God was done with me. I felt it best even before that, that uh, we were talking about that God tolerated me. I heard over and over and over again how God loved me. We, we talked about the passage in Jeremiah 30, 31, 3, that he loves me with an everlasting love. And intellectually, I knew that, but emotionally, it, it was not something that I embraced for myself. It was good for other people, but I, I really looked at it like God tolerated me. I got saved. He was going to let me into heaven. But the idea of God enjoying me or God really loving me deeply, that was not something that I could grasp at that point. Now, today, I can tell you, God loves me with an everlasting love and even in the middle of my mess, he showed up and he continued to show up and he continued to show me his grace. And I talk about in the book that after, after I got out of rehab, I was so lost, but I was like looking for books and I was looking for YouTube videos and I was looking for anything to have God speak to me. And time and time and time again, the messages would be on grace. There were so many messages about the prodigal son and just God running to him. That was something that God started breaking down the view that I had of him tolerating me to absolutely loving me. And I talk about in the book that there was so many times when I would look at how flawed I was, how broken I was. And one of the verses that kept coming back to me time and time and time again was Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that... I am God's handiwork, or I'm his masterpiece, and I'm created, that he created me long ago with the idea that I was to do good works. And just that verse, and also that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So scripture, I had studied all of these scriptures, and I had known them, and I had this intellectual idea in my head of all of them, and I could recite them to you as far as being able to have an integration and to be able to say, you know what, God loves me. He doesn't tolerate me. He absolutely loves me. 
and enjoy spending time with me. You know, I find it interesting too, Mark, the, you had Josh McDowell, did your forward, as we had said. And if you will, I, I find how interesting that his story was instrumental to you. And absolutely, absolutely. It was, it was about two weeks after rehab. I had felt so lost. I was going to counseling. I was going to individual counseling and I was also going to intensive outpatient counseling three times a week, but that gave me so much time. I, I wasn't working and I was had so much free time compared to rehab. And so I had told you earlier, I would search for YouTube video after YouTube video to watch things about grace, things. And, and one day I came across Josh's testimony on YouTube and I can remember watching it and just being totally enveloped as he talked about so many things in his story of alcoholism in his family, sexual abuse, and just about his story that he needed to find people to talk to about it. And so I watched it, I would say probably within that day and the next couple of days, I probably watched it six or seven times and just kept thinking about his challenge because in that video, he talks about sharing your story, finding somebody safe to share your story with. And that was a theme. I heard that in rehab and I was like, no way am I going to do that. I heard that from Josh and it was like, no way am I going to do that. And then little by little, there was a couple that we had over a, a really dear friends of us that, that we usually spend Friday nights with, with Bible study. And I was sharing just bits of my story. And they said, you know what, you really need to write a book and share your story. And so that's how this book came about. In the middle of that, I should say, I had gone into intensive counseling for sexual brokenness with Pure Desire Ministries, a ministry that is in uh, Oregon. And I started working with Harry Flanagan, one of the counselors there. And I am so grateful for him. He was so gentle and he was so kind. And one of the first sessions that I met with him, he said, I'd like you to write down just a sentence or two of each trauma that you had and to send it to me, type it up and send it to me. And so I talked about being thrown in the garbage and I talked about some of the excruciating things that happened with the sexual abuse. And I talked about the robberies and I talked about at, at my home, the robberies that we had at, at my home. And I talked about the car accident and talked about the verbal abuse. And, and my dad used to compare me to his brother that was mentally handicapped. One of the stories that I talked about in the book, it was the night before Easter and I had gotten up. I was maybe eight years old and I didn't know it, but my mom and dad were bringing Easter baskets in from the garage and I walked out into the living room and my father started screaming at me that I wrecked Easter. So I, I talked and Harry and I worked through brokenness that I had and the trauma that I had and it took a long time. It took about two years of just talking about the things and then talking about them again and writing about them and journaling about them and just processing the trauma. Because a lot of times when people have trauma, the front part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. And so you really don't have the words to be able to explain what has happened to you. And I didn't have the words. I mean, there was a, a counselor in, in rehab that said to me, tell us about the sexual abuse with, with your dad. And it was like, I don't have the words to tell it. I really did not have it. I had played it over my head millions of times, what it seemed like at least millions of times, but I didn't have the words to be able to share what had happened and some of the things that took place. And the other part of it, there's two things with it. I didn't have the words. And also I had gotten the message, don't talk about these things. 
So there was so much tension when people came along and said, tell me about it. But I remember Harry, so grateful for him because I remember him saying, we're going to take this slow and we're going to go at your pace, no rush whatsoever. And I talk about in the book how he has become a real father figure for me and somebody that I just, uh, Mm. I can't tell you how much I love him and how much he has taught me about sensitivity and about grace and about acceptance. And he held my story as being valuable and precious and never questioned me mm-hmm. about the things that I said. Mm. Didn't give a lot of input, but was there, felt like he was emotionally holding me as I told him the story. And again, I'm going to say again that it took me about two years and I'm still processing it. You know what? I think that some people think that you go into treatment and you get fixed. It's a process. It's not a procedure. It's a process that goes on for the rest of your life. And I appreciate you had had Josh McDowell on the podcast. And one of the things that he had talked about at his age, he is still dealing with the consequences of it. And I would say, absolutely, I still am every day. I, I am reminded of it in different mm-hmm. ways every day. And I think, Mark, that is why I do what I do. Absolutely. Because an ounce of prevention, we spend all of our time on the prevention side because this is not something that a antibiotic can fix, right? Absolutely. And so as we've listened to this and as we're coming to a close, speak to pastors why this is so important, why they need to hear this, what can they do? I think that, and I had might have mentioned it earlier in this podcast, that I went to be a pastor originally and then went to be a counselor. And I know how much material pastors have to learn within their years of Bible college or seminary. And it is just an enormous amount. And they get so little training in the areas of mental health. And so I think they're fortunate if they get maybe one or two classes in psychology. So I think that I want to honor pastors because I think that they are so hardworking and so driven and so wanting to meet the needs of the flock. But I would say, and again, I pick up from what Josh McDowell talked about, they need training in this area. They need to hear more information about it. And especially in this world that we live in now, and, and we know what's going on in the church and, and just the different things that are, that are happening with sexual brokenness. And so just to be able to say that they deserve, pastors deserve to give themselves the privilege of knowing more about mental health, more about sexual brokenness, so that they can even do a better job, a more efficient job of serving their flock. But they're really at a disadvantage because there's so many demands that are put on pastors. And so my thing, again, reiterating and and reiterating what Josh said on your program, just training. Pastors just need more training. And I guess I, I would say that Maybe not even talking to the pastors, but talking to the congregation, (laughs) that the congregations need to give their pastors that gift of training and that time off to be able to learn those things so that they can become more efficient in their work with the Lord. Wow. Well, thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wow. It's interesting, Mark, how how the Lord just, I always think of the beauty for ashes scripture. and. Absolutely. There's so many people your story speaks to. 
survivors at the church, pastors. I think it speaks to why prevention is so important because Mm -hmm. the understanding of how it affects a life. But also, as you said, the grace, I I know a lot of times it takes a while for survivors to even be able to come forward. And sometimes that's questioned. And I think it's so important for for believers especially and leaders in the church to to really understand mm-hmm. have a survivor centric understanding of that process yes. so i your story is incredible painful in many ways yeah we were, we we were talking about the fact that if i were god and it's a good thing that i'm not but if I were God, I yeah, would have done yeah, this much yeah, differently yeah. in my yeah. life. <laughs> Lord, use me, but really, uh, no, <laughs> should I have to go? Yeah. <laughs> and I, th- and I, think, <laughs> I think a lot of survivors, I, I don't think, I know, they would relate to that. And, and just, I think what is another important aspect is often, and I know, Mike, you have seen this personally so many times, when survivors, especially if they've experienced their abuse within the church itself or a trusted individual in the church, it impacts their faith. And your book stood out to me in so many ways, but just the fact of how the Lord, like you said, the gentleness and the time. Yeah, I think about when you say that, I think about a verse that has become so important to me in Romans chapter two and verse four, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, or it's the kindness yeah, of God that draws that us. To change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mark, we just can't thank you enough for being on the podcast, and I do want to make sure people know your book just came out yesterday, and it's called Finding My Words. And actually, they can just put that in. It's it is on Amazon, both I believe Audible yeah. and uh, paperback, right? Soft cover. Right now, it is Kindle. paperback and Kindle. And we're hoping for it to become on Audible in probably okay. uh, uh, four months. So you can go on, just so for listeners, you can go on Amazon, just put in Finding My Words. Dr. Mark McNair, you don't need the whole subtitle. It's easier to remember Finding My Words. And it will pull it up. And I yeah. looked at the reviews. I, you have a, so far, just came out yesterday, five-star rating. And the reviews to me also, I think, tell a story. Because the reviews are just saying, it's really kind of like a breath of fresh air. It's like, wow, this story is important. It's transparent. It's important for the church. It's important for for other people that have gone through this. Just want to thank you for your courage, transparency, for coming on and sharing your story, but for writing it, because I, I really believe it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.